0: In this episode, we're getting meta. We're going all Christopher Nolan. We're looking at songs written about the craft and process of writing songs.
1: Let's do this. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. All right, Clint,
0: what's today's question?
1: Today's question is, what's the greatest song about songwriting? That's the age-old question.
0: Some of our very favorite episodes, Clint, come from suggestions from our listeners, and this is one of those, from our brilliant friend, Peter Nilsen, who texted us and said, a topic for the age-old question just occurred to me the other day, songs about songwriting or songs that talk about the making of a song. Love it, Pete. Thank you. Yeah, Pete. He goes on to suggest a couple starter logs for our fireside chat, the classic Leonard Cohen song. Hallelujah. We've talked about the song, Clint, a few times on this in various episodes, right? It's one of the greatest songs ever. And for the purposes of this discussion, we'll play the Jeff Buckley version. And the line that talks about, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. Before we hear it, what is Leonard Cohen or Jeff Buckley singing about here?
1: Well, it's music theory, basically. And the fourth and the fifth are referencing chords in the song major and minor chords
0: so let's listen it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall and the major lift
2: well, it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall and the major lift the baffled king composing
0: hallelujah i love it and it's I mean, it's a nice couplet too.
1: It's a great sounding couplet Great It feels couplet. good in the mouth.
0: Another example from Peter Nelson, Hook by Blues Traveler. Of course, when we talk about a hook in a song, it's usually the chorus, right? Yep. Don't Boris get to the chorus. It's the refrain, something that everyone can sing along to. Here's Blues Traveler singing, it doesn't matter what I say so long as I say it with inflection. The hook brings us back.
2: And it don't matter who you are if I'm doing my job.
0: and again there's something very meta about the chorus being this is the chorus it's the hook and it's bringing you back it's sort of this is the role of the chorus but that being the actual chorus One other thing about this song is when he gets to the the super fast lyrics, it's quite a feat of singing. Let's listen. I All right, Pete got us it started. It's great. First of all, Clint, how are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm building a new studio, for one, and it's almost done, and it is unbelievably cool. I can't wait to check it out. Tell yeah. us about it. It's, a, uh, it's right in Middlebury, and it's got two rooms and a, a giant TV with video monitoring for each of the stations in the big room. Super pro sauce. We have Grand Piano, B3... Uh, every keyboard you'd ever need in your life. It's got, we have every single guitar amp you'd ever need. Oh my. Yeah. So it's Mahali from Twiddle and uh, Sam Johnson, who is the sound guy from Twiddle, and I. And we're just going to be making records. And in fact, we're going to make a Rich Price record. Yes. Very soon. How are you doing, Richard?
0: First of all, I want to say on a professional level, as podcasters of this show, 2023 has been another really fun year for us and we're so grateful for listeners tuning into the show providing feedback enthusiasm for the show clinton and i absolutely love it right absolutely love it thank you guys are we going to put out the merch oh we in 2024 let's put out the merch
1: did we do it question mark the,
0: the, yeah <laughs> did we do it and and only people who know this show will know what that means it's like what is the milk one? Got milk? Got
1: milk. Like, right. It's like, did we do it? Question mark.
0: All right. Can I start us off with with one for our dads? Okay. So our dads are both fans of Willie Nelson. This song is called Songwriter. It's where Willie reflects on his life as a songwriter and the impact of his songs. It's actually from a film called Songwriter huh. from 1984, starring Willie and his buddy Chris Christopherson. Chris Christofferson. The soundtrack was actually nominated for an Academy Award, but it lost to what? Purple Rain. Oh, 84. The track and the soundtrack were produced by Booker T. Jones.
1: Oh, wow. Booker T. and the MGs.
0: Actually, I just watched, Kimberly and I just watched the 90th birthday celebration oh, you of watched? Willie at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And Booker T. Jones plays keys in the band. Oh, wow. The film, The Songwriter, that we're talking about is a satirical comedy about an artist seeking his freedom based loosely on Willie's own life. For example, a real-life incident of Willie's in which he sold the song Nightlife in 1961 for $150, and it went on to be recorded by over 70 artists and sold more than 30 million copies. <laughs> oh, no, Willie. Can you believe that?
1: Willie, Willie, Willie. Wow.
0: Let's listen to a little bit of Songwriter.
1: Write
3: it down, what you found out, Songwriter.
2: Don't let it all
4: slip away. Speak your mind all the time, Songwriter.
2: Someone
0: is listening today. So I do love Willie Nelson.
1: Yeah. I, how was the show? I'm definitely going to see it,
0: but. It, it was really good. You know, Nora Jones, Sheryl Crow, Beck, um,
1: Snoop. Snoop. Snoop.
0: <laughs> Loop, And, you know, Kimberly and I are big fans of. Willie's son Lucas Nelson. Yeah. And he performed uh and you know the Hollywood Bowl is just a f- incredible backdrop. Oh, the guy that played bass in the house band, Don was. Okay. And the guy that played keys in the house band. So I mentioned Booker T played keys at one point, but for the most part it was Ben Montenge.
1: Oh nice. Wow. LA Cats. LA Cats. Have you ever seen a show at the Hollywood Bowl?
0: I saw John Mayer, Kimberly and I saw John Mayer there, and we were front row, someone got us tickets, and it was 2008, so it was, it was, room for, continuum, continuum, and
1: oh wow, yeah, it, that's great, blew my mind, yeah, seeing any concert that close, yes, especially someone that you're into, is, is, it makes you never want to sit on the lawn again right seeing something front row seeing John Mayer I saw fish front row once and it just absolutely blows your mind because as a musician you get it all the subtleties that you don't get when you don't see it close you see it and it just it and it also shows that like they're just like we are yeah we could be doing that easily right it's the same thing Speaking of that, makes me think of a show
0: that Kimberly and I just saw. We just went to The Sphere in Las Vegas, and we saw you two. And you're going in January. I am. I'm so excited. And I just have to say, for anyone listening to the show, and if you've heard about The Sphere and you've thought, do I want to go? The answer to that question is yes, you want to (laughs) go. I, you and I both love U2. We, in particular, Altun Baby, wow. and and this show at the Sphere in Las Vegas is built around Altun Baby. It, it's a celebration of that. They they basically play the entire album. They also play other, you know, great songs and hits from their catalog. If you haven't heard of the Sphere, it's a new venue that is basically, as the name suggests, it's like a you know it's like a dome shaped venue and when you think about where bands typically play in arenas those are venues that were created for sports you know if you think about Madison Square Garden that that was a that's a basketball arena that's a hockey a ring. hockey arena yeah. and it's where they also have concerts but this is a venue that was created specifically for a music venue experience The seating is very steep, so there's four levels. There's a floor level, and then there's four balconies. Even if you're on the very top balcony, the fourth balcony, you're right on top of the stage. And then the the, the dome ceiling is like a gajillion LED screens or whatever the technology is, crystal clear fidelity, And so the show that they have, and they're doing a residency in Las Vegas. By the time they're done in March, it'll be, I think, five or six months that they'll they'll be there. It is incredible. It's a visual and sonic. My brother used the phrase, because my brother and my sister-in-law were with us, my brother used the phrase overwhelming perfection. Wow. And that's what the experience was. It was overwhelming perfection.
1: It's like an IMAX meets a concert venue.
0: Yes. It changed my understanding of what a live music experience could could, be. Could be. Yeah.
1: And Fish is doing it in
0: April. Yes. And are you tempted to go? I'm quite tempted.
1: I could probably get tickets if you're into it.
0: Yes. I mean, (laughs) I am. And I I saw that Dead and Companies is either announced or about to announce that they're going to do some shows there. Paul McCartney is apparently in in conversation to do shows there. We're getting off topic, but it
1: it really was incredible. That's awesome. And you know who else loved it? Our very own Jeff Simons. I remember when he went and he gave it the biggest glowing review of any concert he's ever seen. Right.
0: I bought our tickets moments after reading his review. That's amazing. He inspired me. Speaking of Jeff Simons. Jeff, our buddy Jeff, who is you know the MVP guest of this show, he obviously has a podcast that we talk about from time to time called 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. This season, it's location-based. Each episode is talking about the music of a specific location. This week's episode, or this most recent episode, is Liverpool, and they spend an entire episode talking about the Beatles. Absolutely love listening to their discussion about the Beatles and about why the Beatles matter. I want to share a part of the episode that really I found fascinating where Ben is comparing the Beatles to Shakespeare. Here's what Ben says.
5: Um, at post college, I did all these dumb reading projects. Like I read Ulysses, I read War and Peace. Um, I also got the Arden Complete Shakespeare, and I read it from the beginning to the end. As part of that, in order to understand what the hell I was reading, I got Harold Bloom's Shakespeare Invention of the Human. I think that's what it's called. And so it's uh, like a 500 page work of criticism going through everything Shakespeare ever wrote and making this big argument which is that it's not only that Shakespeare created literature. It's not only that Shakespeare created what would eventually become the novel. It's that like in Hamlet and in uh, Richard Third and these other plays, he actually created the internal dialogue, like the actual life of a human. Our entire yes. concept of what a human being is was created by this art. And the Beatles are kind of sort of like that.
0: And here's Jeff's
5: follow-up. First of all, great start to the conversation and you really hit, this hit the nail on the head about the importance of the Beatles. It's the word interiority that I really was struck with that you were talking about. Like Shakespeare invents interiority for human beings and his plays. The Beatles invent interiority in popular music.
0: Interiority. I, I just love that these guys elevate these discussions
5: to academic levels. I remember this moment from high school where I was having an argument with two friends that the Beatles were the biggest band of all time. And one of my friends was like, no, it's totally Led Zeppelin. And I said, okay, well, let's try something. And we went out to my living room and my grandmother was staying with us. My grand- my, my little Greek, 106-year-old, three-foot-tall grandmother. And uh, I said, hey, yeah, do you, you know who the Beatles are? And she's like, oh, John Paul George, Ringo. And my friend's like, yeah, what about Led Zeppelin? And she looks at him and goes "lead, who?" was <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like
3: checkmate. <laughs> so, all
0: right. So, you're gonna have to listen to their episode to hear the rest of it. But it's a great conversation. It's a great podcast. Let's get back to the topic of today. Songs, what is it?
1: What are we? What?
0: So, songs
1: about songs. Songs about songs. I got one. My first one is good, is a is a Sarah Bareilles song. Oh. Are you familiar with Sarah Bareilles? Yeah, I don't think we've mentioned her on this no. in our seventy four episodes, but she is an amazing songwriter. Yeah, I was first introduced to her as the judge on the acapella show, and she was one of the judges, and Ben Folds was one of the judges. Huh? But. She was always very well-spoken, and she did a bunch of acapella in college. She also has won two Emmys because she wrote Waitress, which is a phenomenal Broadway musical. And she's one of the only people from pop music to really do it well, as far as I can tell you. Like, a lot of people have tried. Sting tried. Bono tried. You know, a lot of these guys have tried, and
0: she the dabbling in broadway
1: yeah and she has very much succeeded yeah um but the song i want to talk about is from her very first major label record she sold 3 million albums and 15 million singles in the united states and she's you know she's earned 3 emmy awards 2 grammy awards and 3 tony awards so she's she's real close to the egot i was going to say she's just missing the oscar yeah yeah so I see it coming in her future, for sure. Um, So Love Song was the debut single on her first major label record. It was in in 2007, and it rose to number four on the Billboard Hot 100, spending more than 40 weeks in the charts. Here's the story. She'd written all these songs for the record. The label kept coming back to her and being like, oh, you're so close, you know? You just keep going. And she got so frustrated, and she was like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, she knew in her heart that she didn't have the quote-unquote single they kept being like, go back and write another one. Go back and write another one. And so this song is her F you to the record company, basically. Well, here's a quote. She says, for someone like me, who's prone to a lot of depression and anxiety and self-doubt, I know that I have to manage my mental state in a really rigorous way. I think I felt protective of myself, but the song ended up opening all these doors for me and taking me around the world. So she writes this song about... I'm not going to write you a love song because you asked for it because you want, you know, the song, yeah. we got to play a clip. So it's all about her not writing the song they want, which is very meta, which is exactly what we're talking about. She's writing this song that says, I'm not going to write you the song you want because I am, don't want to be told what to do basically. And by doing that, she wrote her biggest hit song.
0: First of all, let's listen to the song. Yeah.
4: Stares at blank pages No easy way to say this
2: You mean well But you make this hard on me I'm not gonna
0: Carly Simon, like, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. Yeah, right. Like, by saying that, it's like, the song is about you.
1: Exactly. 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 That is great. So this, she says the song is a declaration of independence and a reminder that artists need to be true to themselves and their art. That's her whole, that was her whole point in writing the song. But it's about writing the song... Ultimately,
0: they giving them <laughs> yeah, what they want. Yeah, exactly. It's But in, on her terms, maybe. Yeah,
1: exactly right. On her terms.
0: There's probably a lot of songs by Bob Dylan that directly or indirectly mention songwriting. But I want to focus on one song from his 1970 self-portrait album. It's a song called All the Tired Horses. And it has just two lines the whole song. Huh. Sung over and over. Which for a guy who is known to write verses after verses, it's just funny that there's a song with two lines, the whole song. In a 1984 interview with Rolling Stone, Dylan talks about the fact that he was so tired of people hounding him at his home on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. He says, I just went, fuck it. I wish these people would just forget about me. I want to do something that people just can't possibly like, that they can't relate to. (laughs) Wow. The two lines repeated over and over are All the tired horses in the sun. How am I supposed to get any writing done? The other thing I should say before we play it, it's notable for the absence of Dylan's voice. It features instead a small choir of three female voices Hilda Harris, Albertine Robinson, and Maritha Stewart. The chords are one, six, three, five. Three. He always uses three. C, A minor. E minor G, singing that line over and over, almost like a mantra or like the rant of an artist gone mad. Here it is.
2: All the horses in the
4: sun, am supposed to get in it right and
2: done?
0: Mm-hmm. Even in its radical simplicity, Clint, there's still beautiful poetry in it.
2: All the tired horses in the sun, i am supposed to get in it ride right and done?
0: Tired Horses in the Sun. What does that mean? For his interview in Rolling Stone magazine, it appears to reference all the people that were hounding him, that wanted a piece of him, that wouldn't (laughs) let him live in peace, that needed him to fit squarely into the mold that he'd created for himself. But in his genius, he boils all that down into the phrase, All the Tired Horses in the Sun.
1: That's incredible. Wow. Wow.
2: Ooh, ooh, ooh. All the tired in the sun I supposed to get any done.
0: How am I supposed to get
1: any writing done? Wow. thats a, I didn't even know that song. That's amazing. And boy, what a place in your life where you're trying to write a song that people aren't going to like so they leave you alone. Right. Right? Like where have you gotten to in your life? Where you're at that point. That's right. woof. What's next? All right, I got another one. I got uh you might have heard of this guy, he's like a little indie guy out of Jersey. Bruce Springsteen? Oh, I've heard, heard of, heard of him? him. He had written the majority of the songs for the album which was to be born in the USA. But to quote Tom Petty, the A&R man says he don't hear a single. Yes. So, John Landau, who uh, was his friend His artistic inspiration He was a music critic He was also a manager Record producer guy Friend of Bruce Springsteen Said, you know You gotta have a single And I don't hear it So write another one Apparently, Bruce Springsteen said I've written 70 songs You want another one? You write it Got real pissed But that night As a great songwriter, Will He sat down and wrote this song in one night I get up in the evening
2: I get up in the evening
1: and I ain't got nothing to say
2: and I ain't got nothing to say I come home in the morning i come home in the morning. I go to bed feeling the same way I ain't nothing but tired man I'm just tired and bored with myself hey there baby I could use just a little You can't start a fire You can't start a fire without a spark This thing's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark right.
1: Basically, he's writing about not being able to write You can't start a fire without a spark Right It's again, it's very meta It's like writing about the song itself Um That's really good. It was recorded in 1984 at the Hit Factory, and it had 58 mixes. Whoa. 58 mixes of this song, and was released in 1984 in May, and was the highest-selling 12-inch single in the U.S. that year. It's also his biggest hit of all time. It went to number two. Wow. Um Wow, biggest hit? He's never had a number one? He had a number one by the Manford Mann version oh, of, right. of uh The douche song? The douche song. <laughs> 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 yeah, the douche. Wrapped up like a douche.
0: Wrapped up like a
1: douche. <laughs> another runner in the night. <laughs>
2: blinded. There it is. That's it. Yeah,
4: we
1: got there. We got there. So that's my other one. Just dancing in the dark by Bruce Springsteen. Similar story, similar story, but uh Oh, this next one stretches the criteria
0: of the song a bit, but it's one of our favorite songs. Fa, 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 (laughs) sad song. Sad song. (laughs) By Otis Redding. Yes. The reason I'm including it is that it's a very self-conscious song about what Otis did as a writer and a performer. And it almost deconstructs that in a way. We hear Otis instructing the horn section, the legendary Memphis Horns, When and how to play. It's also the lyric that self consciously acknowledges how Otis had become known for being the singer and writer of so many sad songs. He says, Sad songs is all I know.
2: I keep singing them sad, sad songs. Are all I
0: know. We've talked about meaningless lyrics in a previous episode like Bi Bapalo or Dadu Run Ron, but here's another example of demonstrating that you can have lyrics that are catchy as heck,
1: but don't mean a darn thing. I've definitely played this song with Panda before. Josh Panda loves Otis. That's a good one. This is a little interesting. I'm not sure this this works, but uh, a song made hugely popular by Barry Manilow. Oh, what are your thoughts on Barry Manilow? Where do you stand on the Manilow? The Manilow,
0: you know, it's hard for me. I get really wrapped up in what he's done to his face. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's a level of plastic surgery, nip and tuck that on top of the lounge singer
1: vibe. And yet one has to respect that he's great at what he does. He's had some hits. He's had some hits for sure. I'm not, I mean, Mandy is really the only one. Copa Cabana, right? Copa Cabana is that Barry Manilow? Yeah, I think. I that's mean, that's now. I don't think he wrote either of those songs. Right. He definitely didn't write Mandy. Richard Kerr wrote Mandy. Okay. Copa, Copa Cabana. He was one of the writers on Copa. Okay. I mean, he is a songwriter. He writes his own material, but he also did a bunch of covers and. The cover that I'm talking about is I Write the Song. Now, oh. this song was written by Bruce Johnston. You know who Bruce Johnston is? Oh, from uh, from the Beach Boys. From the Beach Boys. So, the first original version of this song, while written by Johnston, was recorded by Captain and Tennille.
2: I've been alive. I wrote the very first
1: song. I put the words it was on a 1975 the album. Right after that, it was recorded by teen idol David Cassidy for his solo album. That reached number 11 in the UK singles chart. So, song had had some action before Barry Manilow got his hands on it. Now, Barry Manilow was very hesitant to record this song because the chorus lyrics are, I write the songs that make the whole world sing.
2: I write the songs of love and special things. I write the songs that make the young girls cry. I write the songs, I write the songs.
1: So it sounds like, an, like I'm the greatest songwriter of all time kind of thing, right? And that's what Barry Manilow was worried about, but Clive Davis convinced him, you know, just sing, just sing the song, just sing the song, and became a number one hit for Barry Manilow. But what what Johnston was referring to when he wrote the song, he says that I was God, God, or the the music, the collective, the muse, the muse of 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 art, and uh, that's where it comes from. So. I get where Barry Mantle is coming from. And I think he spent the majority of his life in public when somebody heard the song. He would always explain that this isn't about me writing. I'm not writing the song. He felt like it necessary to always cover his bases that way, which is pretty funny. And
0: also funny, too, because he didn't write that song. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's another
1: (laughs) metaverse.
0: You know, he's like, I write the song. No, actually, Bruce Johnston wrote the yeah, song. Yeah, exactly. You know, we talked about this a few times before on the show, about how in the past, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was not uncommon for multiple people to do versions of the same song contemporaneously. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't happen anymore.
1: Never would happen now. Couldn't happen now. That's just an interesting difference. Yeah, it was like the song was the song. Now the song is so married to the artist. Yes.
2: I write the songs, I write the songs.
0: I want to talk about a song. I don't know if you know this song, Clint. Okay. It's a song called Monopoly Mm -mm. by Sean Colvin. Mm -mm. First of all, I love Sean Colvin, especially the album that this song is on called Fat City from 1992. I think it's her masterpiece. That album has songs like Polaroids, which I think is a perfect song and a perfect recording. I just want to play a little bit of Polaroids. Monopoly. This song is about the anguish and ambivalence of writing a song as a catharsis for a heartbreak. Mm -hmm. The lyrics are, I don't know what else to do. I would rather do anything than write this song for you and perpetuate this thing. In my head, in my living room with the usual arsenal of broken chords and rusty strings to surrender all.
2: I don't know what else to do. No, I would rather do anything than write this song for you and perpetuate this thing in my head, in my living room with the use. Broken chords in a rusty strings To surrender all
0: Ooh. She goes on, Music, it never goes. But I told you I hate that shit. And people say, well, you know, you got a song out of it.
2: Music never goes. But I told you I hate that shit. And people say, "Well, well you know, you got a song out of it."
1: But I, I mean, don't I've know said that to so many people in my life. That's it. you got a song out. You got a song out of it. It's, it's it. That I think about that line all the time. That is amazing. Wow, that's exactly what we're talking about.
0: By the way, the musicians on that album are a who's who. Bruce Hornsby on keys. David Lindley on guitars. Joni Mitchell on percussion. Okay. The great British songwriter Richard Thompson on guitar. Chris Whitley on national steel guitar. Jim Keltner on drums. Jeez. Larry Campbell on fiddle and pedal steel. Bela Fleck on banjo. What? Mary Chapin Carpenter Jeff Pivar Booker T. Jones who we mentioned earlier it goes on and on wow I want to talk about a song from another band that you and I love the band is Crosby Stills and Nash the song is Just a Song Before I Go Mm. in the liner notes to their 1991 box set David Crosby explains how Graham Nash came to write this one Graham was at home in Hawaii about to go off on tour the guy who was going to take him to the airport said, we've got 15 minutes, I bet you can't write a song in that amount of time. Well, you don't wise off to Nash like that. He'll do it. And this is the result.
2: Just a song before I go To whom it may concern Traveling twice the speed of sound
0: Graham Nash would later write in his memoir that the guy taking him to the airport, the guy that made the bet, was his drug dealer. One interesting note about the song, it was the highest charting song of their career. What? Isn't that incredible?
1: That doesn't make any sense.
0: I agree.
2: She helped me with my suitcase She stands before my eyes Driving me to
1: And it was written in 15 minutes. That's awesome.
0: Just a song before I go. Anyone who knows me won't be surprised to know that I turned to a song from Paul Simon. Doesn't it make sense that one of the great songwriters of all time would have a song or two about the craft of songwriting? About the magic of songwriting? Like the movie I mentioned earlier starring Willie and Chris Christopherson called Songwriter. Paul Simon made a movie about a songwriter. This one's called One Trick Pony. And the soundtrack of the same name came out in 1980, so four years before the Willie movie. One Trick Pony isn't one of his best-known albums, but it has some of my favorite Paul Simon tunes. Late in the evenings on that.
2: First thing I remember I was lying in my bed. Couldn't have been no more than one or two.
0: How the heart approaches what it yearns, one of his sneaky genius cuts, incredible lyrics. In the blue
2: light Of the Belvedere Motel Wandering as the television burns How the heart approaches what it yearns
0: The song is mostly in 5-4 In
2: a fever I distinctly a dream dream returns Have the heart approaches what it earns.
0: there's another song from One Trick Pony that I love it's called Jonah which I start singing every time I restring my guitar listen to the opening lines of Jonah half
2: an hour change your strings and tune up Sizing the room up, checking the bar.
1: Cool,
0: I love that. But the next album, Hearts and Bones, from November 1983, has a song called "Song About the Moon." Before I talk about that, I want to share a bit about the album that it's on, Hearts and Bones. In 1981, Simon and Garfunkel had a reunion concert in New York Central Park. They had broken up the previous decade at the height of their popularity. Paul Simon, of course, went solo. In the summer of 1981, the promoter, Ron Delsoner and the New York Parks Commissioner, Gordon Davis, approached Paul Simon about a big concert to raise funds for the conservation and renovation of Central Park. They pitched to Paul that Simon and Garfunkel would be the perfect act to perform at this event. But Paul was worried it wouldn't be a success. His album One Trick Pony that I just mentioned had been a commercial flop. In fact, it was such a commercial disappointment that it led Paul to seeking help for depression. He also wondered whether he and Art could get along well enough to pull off a reunion concert. But with HBO on board to film the concert, Paul decided he better at least check in with Art about the idea. So he called up Art, who was vacationing in Switzerland. And Art loved the idea so much, he got on the next plane back to the US. Nice. So the concert takes place on Saturday, September 19th, 1981, on Central Park's Great Lawn. The top range of attendance estimates going into the concert were around 300,000 people. More than 500,000 people ended up showing up.
2: I've come to talk with
0: you again The soundtrack looms large in my childhood.
1: Absolutely Sam. I
0: had it on cassette, and I listened to that cassette a lot. Mm-hmm. I remember in particular when they were singing The Sound of Silence, and he sings In the Naked Light I Saw, 10,000 People Maybe More, and the crowd just erupts. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people more. People talking without speaking People hearing without
0: Okay, back to Hearts and bones. This is the album that was written following this triumphant reunion show. The idea was that it was going to be a Simon and Garfunkel record. But as the songs began coming together Paul Simon decided that they were too personal to fit on a Simon and Garfunkel release. They were songs largely about the tumultuous relationship and marriage to the actress Carrie Fisher. The Album's title track, one of his masterpieces I think, both as a song and as a recording, Hearts and Bones, is about Paul and Carrie and describes them as one-in-One Half-Wandering Jews.
2: One-in-one Half-Wandering Jews Free to wander wherever they choose Are traveling together in the Sangre de Cristo the blood of Christ mountains of New Mexico On the last leg of a journey they started a long time ago The arc of a love affair Rainbows in the high desert air All
0: right, it's taken me a long time to get to the song about songwriting. The song is Song About the Moon. Musicians playing on this track include Steve Gadd on drums, Greg Filaginus on Rhodes. I love the song and the advice about
2: songwriting. If you want to write a song about the moon Walk along the craters of the afternoon Mm -hmm. When the shadows are deep and the light is alien And gravity leaps like a knife off the pavement And you want to write a song about the moon You want to write a spiritual tune The na-na-na-na-na Presto, a song about the moon
0: Presto, a song about the moon huh?
2: If you want to write a song about the heart Think about the moon before you start
1: Let's go to the comments the
2: heart will have
1: Love it Let's go to
2: the
0: comments the episode on TV theme songs brought a lot of great comments, starting with my dad. He texted me, Please let Clint know I have three from the 1950s The Howdy Doody Show, 77 Sunset Strip, and the theme from Peter Gunn.
1: I know the theme from Peter Gunn. I don't know the other two. Howdy Doody theme, that's like, that's early. I didn't really get back into the 50s at all.
4: Hey, kids, what time is it? <laughs>
2: Doody time. It's doody time. Boxes and do. say do to you Let's give a cheer.
0: From Jack Gothier Guys, this was another gem, as you guys know I enjoy the heck out of this podcast I have a few interesting things to send about themes But I'll start with two words Mission Impossible.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course, of
0: course. He goes on to share that John Williams, who of course is perhaps the greatest of all film composers, wrote the Lost in Space theme and the Olympic theme.
1: Oh my, that's a big one. Interesting. (laughs)
0: John Williams wrote that. Wow, that that tracks. We had a few people write in to suggest that we forgot to mention Shaft, but technically speaking, Shaft was a movie franchise, not a TV series. So, but we did talk about Shaft in our episode on the best use of a song in a movie. So, for those keeping track at home, you can go back to May of 2021 when we did talk about Shaft. Our buddy Tim from the podcast we mentioned, 50 Years of Music with 50 Year Old White Guys wrote on Facebook, definitively, The Rockford Files. And I can't believe I wasn't invited to join you for this one.
1: <laughs> nice. We did talk about The Rockford Files. We did. In that, that guy.
0: Pete on Facebook wrote, glad to hear Mike Post was in the mix with all the songs he was associated with. Remember we talked about this guy, Mike Post? Yeah. Who wrote like... He wrote
1: The Rockford Files he was the guy he wrote the rock and yeah. he
0: wrote greatest American hero uh, I mean he wrote at all. all most most of them Mark writes on Instagram hey guys welcome back just finished listening to your latest on TV theme songs great job thorough and informative such a big topic you probably could do a second show a couple of my favorites that you missed an instrumental the theme from Hawaii Five-0 oh yeah remember that one? Oh yeah that's, that's a, a great good one that's a one <laughs> From Instagram, Alex writes, I can't believe Game of Thrones didn't get an honorable mention for best instrumental theme song. Yes. It's good. On Instagram, Steven writes, Suicide is Painless from M.A.S.H.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. The
0: M.A.S.H. Yeah, I did read about that one. I didn't I know that song was called Suicide yeah. is Painless. yeah. Larry on Instagram wrote, "Love the podcast and this episode about TV theme songs was too much fun. However, there was a glaring omission. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> the Monkees theme song.
1: Yes, of course. That is a great. That one. is a. That's. You're totally right, yeah, Larry. Totally right. Here we come, walking
2: down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet.
0: From Andrea on Instagram. Hi guys, I simply can't wait for new episodes to come. So glad that I'm able to listen here in Germany. Golden Girls was a very popular song here too. For me, Twin Peaks theme song is another great one. It could also count for a warm bath song. Interesting. If the show wasn't so spooky. Andrea, I love that you're listening in Germany. That's amazing. And you're right.
1: Yes. Nice work.
0: Oh, one final comment to share. We love it when listeners go all the way back to early episodes. This one is in response to episode 21. What is the greatest, greatest hits album of all time? That was June of 2021. Scott wants us to know that Earth, Wind & Fire's classic, September, was previously unreleased but included on their greatest hits album
1: what their biggest hit was it's an
0: add-on it's sort of like Last Dance with Mary yeah, Jane yeah you're right yeah it is included on the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Greatest Hits album and then becoming one of their biggest hits.
6: wow
1: I didn't know is that real that's incredible
0: Scott thanks for blowing our mind
2: bam do you remember
0: Okay, Clint, you know how we like to talk about the Beatles? (laughs) I do. In fact, we have a segment theme song called Rich and Clint Talk About the Beatles.
1: Hit it. Uh, uh,
6: uh, 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 Rich and Clint talk about the Beatles.
0: In our last episode, we talked about the latest single, Now and Then. We discussed the fact that Paul, George, and Ringo had begun work on that song in 1994 and 1995, and we said that it was ultimately George who pulled the plug on any further work on Now and Then. And it's led to some question recently, some criticism of Paul and Ringo, that somehow they were going against George's wishes by returning to that song a quarter of a century later. Paul has said that George's issues were less with the song and more the poor sonic quality of the track. But others have said, no, no, George just hated that song. Huh. I want to share a clip of an interview with Olivia Harrison, George's widow, on why she ultimately believes that George was totally on board with his plan from beyond the material world. Oh, nice reference.
4: We were in this store. George saw this clock made out of bits and pieces, and it had some Scrabble letters. And it just said, now... And then he was attracted to it for some reason, just took it off the wall and bought it, built this little Russian dacha in the garden and hung the clock in it. And there it sat for 25 years. End of last summer, cleaned it up a little bit, put it on the mantelpiece, phone rings. It's Paul. And he begins to explain that there was, reminding me of this third song that was on the cassette tape with Real Love and Free as a Bird. And I said, I remember it. It's called Now and Then. And I'm standing there looking at the clock that said Now and Then. We were so moved and happy that this thing that George had held in his hand somehow magically appeared. And I said, I think this is Georgie saying it's okay.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a sign. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Do we have time for some Mondegreens? There's always time for a good Mondegreen. <laughs> My wife is kind of the queen of Greens in that she just sings what she hears, and then I hear her sing that, and I'm like, whoa, 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 what did you just say? And this happens all the time in our relationship. So the other day, we were, we were listening to uh, Fine Young Cannibals. Yeah. She drives me crazy.
2: She drives me crazy.
1: Like long blonde hair. <laughs>
2: You try
1: no one else, like no one else. and so she writes me a text I've been singing those lyrics since I was eight years old which is <laughs> amazing uh, like long blonde hair <laughs> alright I'm ready are you ready?
0: I'm gonna say my pick for the greatest song about songwriting is from Bernie and Elton, your song.
1: Oh, of course.
0: Here's a great interview with Bernie Taupin about how the song was written and how the scene from the film Rocket Man is actually really accurate in its portrayal of how the song was written in under 10 minutes.
5: We've got to go back to you in Elton's house with Sheila. Um, uh-huh. she's making, She's got a fried egg on the go. Right. A couple of fried eggs. A couple of fried eggs. And you um, sit down and you knock out your song in 10 minutes.
3: Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is that if if anybody's seen the movie Rocket Man, you know, for the most part, that is a fantasy. um, And it's chronologically the music's mixed up all over the place. But there are a couple of scenes in Rocket Man that are really, really very much the way that they happened. And that, the, the composition of your song in the movie is, is really very much the way it happened. I mean, you see Elton and I at the breakfast table. Sheila's in the kitchen. I think the, uh, uh, Elton's grandmother's in it, but she wasn't there at the time in reality. And there's a scene in the movie that I, I actually... Um, told them they should put in the script because it's it's something that really happened and I don't know how many people picked it up in the movie but there's a bit in the movie where uh, I kind of pick it up and wave it under Elton's nose and he kind of looks at it he picks it up and he goes this has got egg on it (laughs) and which which I remember clearly was the way it happened and then he did he took it and went into the living room you know where the old stand-up piano was and sat and basically composed it in a very very short time
2: it's a little bit funny this feeling inside i'm not one of those
0: interestingly when it was released in october 1970 it was the b-side to take me to the pilot, but DJs preferred the B side, your song, and spun that instead. It was praised by Rolling Stone magazine as McCartney esque. In 2022, Billboard magazine ranked it number two on the list of Elton's
1: greatest songs. Wow, yeah, one of the very first songs of the collab.
5: My gift is my song. Yeah.
2: This one's for you
0: But What's your pick for greatest song about songwriting?
1: I'm going to have to go Love Song by Sarah Bareilles. That is great. It's a great song. It's it's a really, really well-produced song. She sounds great singing it. And I love that it's just an F you to the music Hit industry and sticking to your guns. So well done, Sarah Bareilles. And I'll just say that
0: my bandmate, Brian Chartrand, has a song that we do called Love Song.
5: I
2: think I'm writing a love song.
0: I think I'm writing a love song.
1: I think I'm writing a love song. So that's a song about... Yeah. ...about songwriting. Oh, that's a great one. Huh, nice pull. Maybe we should
0: re- revise and say, Brian's is the best song about songwriting.
1: It's It's interesting. I love the fact that I think... Right? I think I'm writing a love I song. I think I'm writing
2: a love song. That's. I I'm writing a love song for you. Now sing it out even if you walk away.
0: Oh, wow. Well, it's interesting. He often talks about how me and Greg are the ones that write love songs, and he writes songs about drinking bourbon and <laughs> and. Crashing and burning. So for him to say, like there's an ambivalence, right, about that lyric, like, I think I'm writing a love song as you're walking away. Yeah.
1: Wait, this is really good, bro. Boy, he's like
0: an onion. Yeah. He, you know, he's many layers to this
2: guy. This guy.
0: We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. We hope you had a great 2023, and here's to a great 2024 when we answer some more age old questions, follow us on Instagram at
1: The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question.
0: We hope this conversation
1: has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, Please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash theageoldquestion and consider becoming a part of our Age Old Question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age-old questions. Thanks.